0: As we study tonight, that, Holy Spirit, you would teach us, that you would open our hearts and our ears, our minds to understand, our hearts to receive. Lord, except you fill us and anoint us, Lord, in this time of study, Lord, this would be completely for naught. So we look to you, Lord Jesus. Teach us what you'd have us to know and empower us to follow it. And this we ask in your name, Amen. Amen. What does a mature believer in Christ look like? If I were to ask you, name some people that you think of as giants in the faith. Uh, some names would immediately come to mind, even in your head. You know, you've know, you got the Corey Ten Booms, you've got the Jim Elliots, you've got the Charles Spurgeons, you've got these giants that have served the Lord uh, in, in great and amazing ways. Have you ever thought to yourself, well, gee, could I ever be one of those? Um, will I ever be able to grow to that point where I could be a giant in the Lord? I mean, some of these folks had some incredible faith. You read the stories of Cory ten Boom and how they endured and endured, and Jim Elliott, how he was so focused on delivering the gospel to the Indians in Ecuador, and nothing, nothing diverted his path. It's like, wow, I couldn't do that. Have you ever wondered just... What makes those folks tick? And how can I get some of that? If Jesus said in John 10.10 that I've come that you may have life and have it more abundantly, then how can that more abundant life be made effectual and real in your life and in mine? Unfortunately, the Bible does not leave us in the dark on this. Praise God. We find instruction in many passages, including this passage here in Second Peter, that give us a plain and practical instruction on how to grow in godliness. And we just had a baptism a couple weeks ago, um, and and you know Pastor Tim has said that this year we've had more people come to Christ in 2016 year to date than any other year in the history of this church. And so you know when when we are born again, the first thing that we begin to look at is well, how do you grow? You know, when we had our children, the first thing you want to see is you want to see them grow. Uh, it's, it's, it's not acceptable to have a five-year-old who still is in infancy in their growth and maturity. We want to see growth. And so in this passage today, we want to work our way through these first 11 verses of the book of Second Peter and find what the Lord has for us in terms of how we are to grow in this life of faith. As a matter of fact, as a title, uh, I've entitled our study tonight "The Life of Faith." The life of faith. Uh, you'll find also that uh, I'm, I may, am uh, I'm, I'm probably like, uh, like uh, in terms of, of serving. Um, you'll you'll probably be full, and this is not a boast. A, a, Trust me, this is no boast. I mean, I have to, if, if I throw, a, if you get a lot, of, a lot of scriptures from me tonight, imagine how many I had to go through to, to prepare the plate today. Um, so you'll, you'll want to take a lot of notes, I'll probably give you a lot of Bible passages, and I commend those to your study at home. Um, you know, I desire that, that, that not only do we hear the message that is being delivered here today, uh, through you know, a faulty and finite man, but that we take this home and we study it and we you know, continue to let it marinate and and, use, and the Lord uses it to grow us. So the Bible presents a dichotomy, which is two seemingly opposing viewpoints on the doctrine of salvation, especially here in Second uh, Peter. Uh, there's clearly a part that God plays that only he can play, and there's no mistaking that. But there also appears to be a part that we play that only we can play. And of course, we can only do that through the empowering of the Holy Spirit. As Pastor Tim says, they're like two rails of the same train track. There's a part that God has to play. But then there's also a part that we have to play. Just like Pastor was saying on Sunday, you know, does God call us and choose us or do we say yes to him? Yes. Right? So there's a part that we both have to play. Here's what Spurgeon says about it. He says the two most important things in our holy religion are faith and life. They possess they possess so intimate a connection with each other that they are by no means to be severed. God hath so joined them together, let no man seek to put them asunder. You shall never find true faith unattended by true religion or true godliness. I'm sorry. On the other hand, you shall never discover a true holy life that has not, for its root and foundation, a living faith upon the righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. So the the grace that brings us to salvation is never unaccompanied by a holy life. It's never unaccompanied by living out that life, that new life in Jesus Christ. And he says, woe unto those that seek the one without the other. I think Peter gets to that same point in these first 11 verses. I've I've divided our study tonight into three sections. Uh, Received, looking at verses 1 through 4. Responsible, uh, verses 5 through 7. And rewarded, verses 8 through 11. So let's look at received, the first first four uh, verses. Notice how many times, as we read through verses one through four, how many times Peter makes reference to what God has done for us, or what we have received from Him. Let's just look at it. Look at verse one: "But uh, to those who have obtained," and I actually mean that the word actually means received, literally means received. So there's one. Verse two: "Grace and peace be multiplied to you." So not something that we do; God's grace and peace are multiplied to us. Verse 3, look at given to us, uh, called us. These are all things that God has done that we didn't have anything to do with, uh, by which, verse 4, have been given to us exceeding great and precious promises. So over and over we see in these first four verses that grace is something, the faith, of, uh, the faith is something that we receive from, from God. It's not something that we manufacture on our own. Right? Did the Lord call us, or did we say yes? Yes. But still, God is the initiator of that faith. Right? He initiates it. And we see in verse 1 two things I'd like to point out. Number one, the value of our faith. He says, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have obtained or received like precious faith, or the same precious faith, or faith of the same value as we, right? Same, like precious faith with us in the righteousness of God and Savior Jesus Christ. The same faith. And that's important. You may recall in Acts chapter 10, when Peter had the vision of the sheet coming down and all the unclean animals. And this was all preparing for his encounter with Cornelius, a Gentile centurion. And when he recounts that episode with the apostles in Acts chapter 11, So you should study uh, Acts chapter 10, but Acts chapter 11, verse 17, Peter says this, If therefore God gave them, who are the Gentile believers, Cornelius and his household, the same gift that he gave us, which is the Jewish believers, when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? Who was I that I could withstand? The Lord gave this same gift to the Gentiles as he gave to us Jews. Who am I to withstand what God is doing? And even in our studies in, in uh, Galatians, we saw how Paul had to confront Peter face to face because he would not fellowship with the Gentiles, right? But at this point, this is his last letter, the last letter we have on record, and we believe that this letter was written shortly before his death. It's interesting to see he opens this letter, his salutation, his greeting in this letter is, I'm writing to those of you, and I want to assure you that whether you're Jew or Gentile, whether you're rich or poor, The faith that you have received from Jesus Christ is of the same value, is of the same stuff as the faith that we have received. Amen? Not only the value of our faith, but we also see in verse 1 the object of our faith. Because faith is only as good as as the object in which we place it. If I place my faith in a confession or if I place my faith in a prayer, I placed my faith in the fact that I walked an aisle. That does not stand in the day of judgment. Only one will stand. And he says that it is the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Literally, it says, uh, faith with us in the righteousness. Right? Have, seen, have obtained like precious faith with us in the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 3, verse 21, you don't have to turn there, but it reads, But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. And if you read through uh, to verse 26 in that passage, you'll see righteousness, righteousness, righteousness over and over again. But, but the point that Paul is making there in Romans is that it's not our righteousness. Paul said in Titus, it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but by his mercy. Right? So this is not our righteousness. Our faith is in his righteousness. It's the great exchange. Right? All I have is my sin and shame, and he has the perfect righteousness of God, and he exchanges my sin for his righteousness. And that is the, the, the object of our faith. As the song, the hymn says, my, faith, my hope is built on nothing less but Jesus' blood and righteousness. Right? I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ, the solid rock. Amen. Don't make me sing up here. <laughs> All right. All right, so in addition to saving faith, look at verse 2. We receive grace and peace multiplied, and that multiplied is in ever-increasing measure. So the grace and peace of God is poured out upon us in ever-increasing measure. God just never stops pouring out grace and peace. He never stops pouring out His mercy. And lamentation, His mercies are renewed every morning, for great is His faithfulness. Even when we're not, great is His faithfulness, right? And it says, through the full knowledge of God, through the knowledge of God, and that word is full knowledge. The Greek word is full knowledge. It's, It's epignosis. Gnosis is the Greek word for know, epi means full and complete knowledge. So the more we come to know Jesus Christ, the more our walk grows with Christ, the more grace and peace we find real in our lives. You see, you know how people sometimes, they get hit hard with some calamity or some tragedy in their lives, and they just seem to be able to just take it. They seem to just be able to go through. I'm talking about believers. I'm not talking about the power of positive thinking. I'm talking about people who believe in and in have a firm foundation in Jesus Christ, who've been walking with the Lord for many, many years, and it just seems like that stuff rolls off their back. Well, that's because they know God. They have a knowledge of God. They have a true and full and complete knowledge of God. An ever-increasing knowledge of God yields an ever-increasing amount of grace and peace in our lives. Verse 3, by His divine power, we also receive everything that is necessary for spiritual life and godliness. What is everything? Everything, with nothing lacking. God, by His divine supply, has provided everything we could possibly need. For spiritual life and godliness. By the same power that hung the stars in the sky, by the same power that spoke light and light light came to exist, the same power that shaped this earth, the same power that scooped man out of the earth and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life has set before us every single thing that we'll ever need to live this life and be godly. Amen. Man, that's awesome. And then verse 4, we see that He has given us, we've received again, exceedingly great, which is greater than great. Literally, greater than great promises. He says exceedingly great and precious promises, and that addresses both the now and the not yet. Right. So promises that are are applicable here in the now in which we live and applicable in in the not yet that we have not even seen yet. Great and precious promises. And he says that through these, we may become partakers of the divine nature. Of course, that doesn't mean that we become God. That's impossible. But you do remember that Adam was created in the image of God. And sin marred that image. And through Christ, we are recreated. Any man be in Christ, he's a new creation, Right, So we're recreated in that image of God. Second Corinthians 3, three 3.18 says, But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory, of the, God, the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, right? From glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. So the, the rebirth and the recreation brings us into the image of God. So the exceedingly great and precious promises making us into partakers of the divine nature reflecting the image of God. And if you're taking notes, I just want to I just want to give you just eight things and and I mean this is this is by no means an exhaustive list, but here just a list, a short list of some of the promises that you can look up for yourself. So when you're dealing with certain things and 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 the promises of God are so encouraging and so strengthening that you know the joy of the Lord is our strength. And so we may find Comfort and encouragement in these promises. This is just, again, just a small sampling. We could just go the whole night about the promises of God, really. But uh, here, here we go. Number one, freedom from sin's dominion. Freedom from sin's dominion. That's Romans chapter 6, verse 14. Probably could have put these on the slide in hindsight. But you guys got it. Romans six fourteen. Sin shall no longer have dominion over you. That's God's promise. Verse 2, number 2, grace that is sufficient, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. Grace that is sufficient, 2 Corinthians 12, 9. That's Paul and his thorn in the flesh. The third one, power to obey his commands, Philippians 4, 13. I can do all things through Christ. Number 4, victory over the devil. Love that one. Amen. Resist the devil and he will flee. Man. Next one, number five, escape when tempted. 1 Corinthians 10.13, there's no temptation taken among you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted above that you're able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape. Y'all getting these? All right, good, good. Number six, forgiveness when we confess our sins. 1 John 1, 9. Forgiveness when we confess our sins. And as a bonus, forgetfulness as well. Jeremiah thirty one thirty four, Your sins and iniquities I will remember no more. For for an all-knowing God, he sure has a bad memory when it comes to sin when we come sincerely to Him repenting. Number seven, response when we call. He hears us when we call. Psalm 50 and 15. There are plenty of other verses that say, uh, that refer to that. That He hears us when we call. Response when we call. Psalm 50, verse 15. And in the age to come, number eight, eternal life. 1 John two twenty-five. And again, these are just a few, just a, a, a thumbnail of the vast promises contained in this book. And we just, we just mine the depths of the Word of God to discover the promises that He has for us. Now, that's pretty exciting if you really think about it. If we really stop and think, just these first four verses, man, you could just go with these and go home. Say, Lord, look at all that you've given us. You've given us faith. You've granted unto us saving faith. You've given us all that we need for life and godliness. You've allowed us to participate in your nature. You have given us great and precious promises. You've given us an eternal hope. Praise be to God for all that you've done. We could almost just say that's it. But that's not all. That's not all that that Peter says here. Verse 5, he comes and says, and this is responsible, so let's look at responsible. He says in verse 5, for this very reason, I kind of look at at, at 1 Peter 1, 1 through 11 as kind of the outworking of Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. You know, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Well, how do you present your body a living sacrifice? You know, holy and acceptable unto God. Well, how do you do that? This is your reasonable service. The very least you can do. Be not conformed to this world. Well, how do you do that? This, kind of, this, this, this passage here is kind of the outworking of that in my, in my little estimation. And he says, for this very reason in verse 5, because of all that we've received from God and for the great price that it cost him to provide it to us. He then says, giving all diligence. With all diligence. Meaning with every effort with all the determination, with all the eagerness, with all the earnestness that we can possibly muster. Why with so much earnestness? Why with so much eagerness? I think because of two things. Number one, because of how vital these virtues are for us to fully partake of the divine nature. And I think number two, because the enemy will give maximum effort to prevent us from growing in any way. Our enemy seeks to steal, kill, and destroy, and he will oppose and stop at nothing to prevent us from growing in grace. 1 Corinthians 9, 24, Paul says, Do you not know that those who run a race run all, but only one receives the prize? And he says, Run in such a way that you may obtain it races to lose the race. I mean, you know, after we after we dismiss tonight, man, our kids are going to do what they do, right? They're going to hit the hit the field, they're going to get to running, and nobody wants to come in last. I would wager that even if we said, "Alright, we're going to have a different race. We're going to say we're going to who can run the slowest." They will even try to be the slowest. As long as it's an EST, an EST, Everyone strives to be the EST. If it's the fastest, I want to be the fastest. If it's the highest, I want to be the highest. Right? If it's the smartest, I want to be the smartest. None of us tries to fail. None of us tries to come in last. Right? And so this is what Paul is saying. Run in such a way that you may obtain it. Only one receives the prize. Get in there and run the race. And then he says, giving all diligence, add to your faith. And that's kind of odd, isn't it? I mean, after all, he has given us faith in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He has given us peace and grace. He has given us, uh, through his divine power, all the things that pertain to life and godliness. It's like, what more could I add to faith? What more can I add to all this that God has given us? Well, I think that uh, the the translation here is not quite helpful. I think the NASB, uh, New, New American Standard Bible, has... Uh, the more accurate and more helpful translation. It actually means, in the exercise of your faith, also supply these things. So you're not adding. It's not, like, it's not like faith in and of itself is insufficient and you've got to pile something on. Faith is sufficient. But in the exercise of your faith, supply this as well. In the exercise of, your, of virtue, supply this as well. This is what he's saying. Martin Luther said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is not alone. I'll say that again. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is not alone. Spurgeon again says, you must have faith for this is the foundation. You must have holiness of life for this is the superstructure. So you can't have one without the other. You can have a really strong foundation and have no house. What good is that going to do you? Or you could have this big elaborate house that's on sinking sand. What good is that going to do you? You've got to have both the, faith, the, fa- the foundation of faith and the superstructure of the life lived, the life of faith. The Greek word here for ad, I'm not even going to try to pronounce it. Yeah, I will. Uh, epikoregeo. Epikoregeo. And, and there's a reason why. The root word in there is the word from which we get Chorus. Epikoregeo is the Greek word here for ad. And it literally has an allusion, since I'm a worship leader, it literally has an allusion to choral music. This term was used in in those days to represent choral music. It literally is as if faith is the choral leader. Faith is the song leader. And as faith kicks off the melody, all these other virtues are to add their harmony part to the song until you have this rousing chorus of song of worship to the Lord. That's literally what this, what this verse is saying. So faith is just starting out with the melody line. Virtue as the soprano part, right? Knowledge kicks in the, 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 the alto part and so on and so forth until you have this beautiful symphony uh, before the Lord. That's awesome, isn't it? Wow. That kind of jumped out at me. Wonder why. All right, so let's look at the qualities. Uh, briefly, we, uh, we see that there are seven all total. Uh, starts with five that are more internally focused, and then the last two are more externally focused. And uh, many of the uh, commentators and uh, scholars have uh, read Said, well, there's no real, you know, order to any of these. It's kind of random, you know. Have to do one, one, then the other, then the other. Um, but I tend to disagree, um, and I'm no scholar by no stretch. Um, but I, I just read that, you know, to your, you know, add to your faith, virtue, and then add to your virtue, knowledge, and add to knowledge, self-control. So that kind of tells me, at least to me, that maybe there is an order. Maybe there's a line that we can draw through these, and we begin to see a progression. I think that we'll, we'll find that. It indicates growth in discernible phases. Again, we talked about babies, right? When, our, when we had our son, uh, our son was born four pounds, two ounces, I believe. He was a preemie. And our first concern was, will the boy eat? I mean, we weren't so concerned about walking. I mean, can he eat is, is, is the, the number one question of the day. But then he got past that. You know, we were thrilled that he could eat, but we didn't want him to stay there. We we're like, okay, now we want you to sleep more than two hours at a time, right? So it, it, I believe that we can, we can, we can look at the, uh, the virtues and the qualities that Peter is going to talk about here and kind of map it in our own lives and say, okay, I can see myself there. I can see myself there. At least I hope so. So look at the first one. Add to your faith. Virtue. Virtue is pure motives, moral goodness. Uh, at this stage, you may not know much of the Scriptures yet. right? You may not be strong in the Word of God. Uh, but there begins to be a pureness of heart and a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit. Virtue, literally, uh, you could equate virtue with zeal. You ever see a new believer that just is on Fire. Man, they don't know five scriptures. They know John 3.16, but boy, they will preach John 3.16 to anybody. Anybody. Right? They're just so zealous. They're so on fire for the Lord. They don't know anything yet. They have no idea, but they're just so excited that Jesus would would pick them up out of darkness and and, and place his light upon them. That's adding to your faith virtue. Adding to your faith virtue. 2 Peter 3, 14 says, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot, and blameless. Again, you may not know the Scriptures, but there's something on the inside that says, hey, that's not right. You know, you, you, the friends that you used to hang with, something just tells you, you don't even know Scripture. You, have book, you don't have book, chapter, and verse to, to back any of this up. But just something starts to tell you that maybe I, that's, that's not right. I shouldn't go to those places. I shouldn't hang with those people. I shouldn't wear those things. I should go to church. I should be in the fellowship of the saints. Maybe I should go to that Bible study. And you don't have any, any, any biblical foundation, but the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, and your heart is softened and sensitive to that. Number two, to virtue, knowledge. Again, in the exercise of virtue, also supply knowledge. Seek after knowledge. Of course, we know that zeal without knowledge is very dangerous. I'll say that again. Zeal without knowledge is very dangerous. Paul says in in Romans 10, 2, talking about his own people, the Jews, said that they have a zeal, but not uh, not according to knowledge. They have a zeal for the Lord, but not according to knowledge. ISIS has zeal, right? The Jehovah's Witnesses have zeal. The Mormons have zeal. Sometimes I wish more Christians had zeal. We have the knowledge, but we don't have the zeal sometimes. We know the word of God. We know that that, this is the only, that Jesus is the only way to God, but we've lacked, we lack the zeal sometimes, don't we? But again, this is the progression. And it's not necessarily, in order. I don't believe that this is prescriptive. I believe it's descriptive, right? I think that we kind of look at ourselves on the continuum and say, oh, I think I'm there, right? If you've got the knowledge and not the zeal, then we know what we need to work on, right? But if I got tons of zeal and I don't know any Bible, then I know what I need to work on, right? All right. It is an emphasis on studying the word. It's a deep hunger to know God and the truth of His word, and it results in a keen discernment between good and evil. Right? Not only do you know that I shouldn't hang with these people, I know that good that evil evil communications corrupt good manners. Oh, maybe that's why I shouldn't. Right? I know that I should go to church. Oh, but now I've learned that the Bible says that forsake not the assembling of ourselves, as the manner of some is. Oh, okay, now I've got some, some Bible to stand on. I've got some foundation to stand on. Hebrews 5.13, 14 says, For everyone who partakes only of milk is, un, is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is a babe or an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. There's the word. That's, that's, the per, that's the adding knowledge. Because of practice, because we practice, we get into the word and we study and we mind the depths of scripture, we have our senses trained to discern between good and evil. Okay? Let's look at the next one. To knowledge. Self-control. In the exercise of knowledge, also supplies self-control. Having learned what God requires now we begin to put it into practice. Self-control, temperance, it is self-mastery. It is discipline. Discipline in what? Discipline in our time. Discipline in our prayer. Discipline in our our Bible study, our study, our personal devotions in the Word. Discipline in our behavior. Having learned what the Bible says, we now begin to govern our lives. Oh, the Word says I need to do that? I'm going to do that. Word says I need to stop doing that, I'm going to stop doing that by the power of the Holy Spirit. Knowledge is not enough. Zeal is not enough. You see how they kind of stack on each other, right? You you can't have zeal without knowledge, and you can't have knowledge without self-control, right? 1 Corinthians 8.1 says knowledge puffs up. If I'm just a big brain, then I'm just a big airhead. I just know a lot of stuff, but I don't walk in it, and that's no good. Again, 1 Corinthians 9, uh, 25-27, Paul says, and everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things or has self-control in all things. Again, he has the the picture of an athlete. He says, therefore, I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. I don't shadow box. If I'm going to box, I'm boxing for real. He says, but I discipline my body. King James says, I beat my body. And I bring it into subjection. I make it my slave, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. So to our faith, we add virtue. To our virtue, we add knowledge. To our knowledge, we add self-control. And to our self-control, we add perseverance or patience. The Greek word here is hupomone. It's actually two words that mean to bear under weight. That's what patience, perseverance means. It literally means you have this huge weight upon you, and you bear, it on, you bear under it. You're able to stand under a huge amount of weight. This is patient endurance in the face of persecution or adversity. It literally is the ripening season of the fruit. Right when, when you plant it, you've got the little sprig that comes up, and you've got the leaves, and all of a sudden you see the little bud, and that's the fruit. Wow. Oh yeah, it's coming, it's coming. But now you now you wait for it to ripen. And it takes time. And we don't know how long it takes sometimes, right? It could be years. In our, in our walk, in spiritual in spiritual terms, it could be years where we just wait and watch it ripen. You want to know if if your if your faith is 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 strong, wait for it to be tested. Right? It's through the testing, it's through the it's through all the weather, right? All the storms, all the blazing sun. All the, t- all the pouring rain, and that fruit continues to grow. That fruit continues to sweeten until the harvest time. That's where perseverance comes into play. In spite of difficulties, in spite of disappointments. See, this is why uh, our brothers and sisters in persecuted nations, they, their, their level of spiritual maturity is so far above ours because their level of trial is more than we can imagine. Right? They are being ripened in God's eyes. They are being tested and challenged and confronted with all sorts of evil, and they're able, by the grace of God, to bear under that weight. Okay? Temperance is the grace of holding back, or self-control is the grace of holding back. Perseverance is the grace of holding on. Right? Temperance is the grace of holding back but perseverance is the grace of holding on. Jesus, of course, in Matthew 10, 22, says, he who endures to the end shall be saved. Next, to to perseverance, we add godliness. that kind of struck me. It's like, wow, can I do all these things? Can I add all these things and still not be godly? Well, apparently so. Here's what we know. We lose the benefit of virtue and knowledge and self-control and perseverance if they don't all lead to godliness. Right? We know that when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, our motives will be judged by Christ. So I may have been a virtuous and courageous and zealous person. I may have had all knowledge Right? I may have been able to, to, to control myself and have a certain amount of perseverance and, 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 and endure certain trials, but if I have not done it, seeking to be more like Christ, it profits me nothing. Godliness is a supernatural quality of life, whereby every inward thought and outward act is an outpouring of worship and adoration to God. It is where we begin to bear the unmistakable family resemblance to our Heavenly Father. We actually begin to look like our Heavenly Father. Again, being, being changed into His image from glory to glory, right? As we ripen and we ripen and we ripen, we begin to actually look like our Heavenly Father. We begin to represent Him. We become attractive to the world. And our jobs and our schools. We begin to be attractive because the beauty of Jesus' holiness begins to emanate from us, and we begin to attract the unbelievers, and they begin to be curious, like, wow, how is it that you do that? How is it that you carry on that way, right, to perseverance godliness? In 1 Peter, uh, Peter writes, because it is written, be holy for I am holy. God commands this, that we be godly. First uh, Timothy 4.8, Paul says, For bodily exercise profits a little, but godliness is profitable for all things, having the promise of life that is now and of that which is to come. So these are the five internal. Again, uh, virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, and godliness. And when all these are in action and all these are, are, uh, are acting in the life of the believer it begins to really overflow into the lives of others. And this is where, to godliness, we add brotherly kindness, which is literally love for the brethren, or, the, or, the, or the, the brothers and sisters in Christ. It manifests in kindness extended to our brothers and sisters, both in our local congregation and abroad. Every brother and sister, we begin to love them more. Okay? Uh, John 13, 35, Jesus says, By this will all men know. That you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Again, we become attractive to the world. The world begins to see that, wow, there's something different about these Christians. There's something different about this guy, or this gal at my job. And they'll come to you too. Amen, they will come to you. Man, they come running when stuff goes wrong. They will hunt you down, right? And they'll want a word of advice or they'll ask you to pray. I can't tell you how many times... I mean, they, they'll carry on, they'll do their cursing, they're drinking, they're doing all that kind of stuff, but when something goes wrong, can you pray for me about something? Seriously. How many have seen, have seen that happen? There you go, right? And that leads to number seven, to brotherly kindness, love. Which is not only love to the brethren, but love for all mankind. Love for everyone. It's not one of those just, oh, I love everybody. No, this is true agape love, right? This is the love of Christ, the love of God that is expressed through us to those who don't believe. It is a decision. It is not an emotion. It's not characterized by emotions, but by an act of the will. It is a conscious choice to love without condition and without qualification. Uh, You may uh, remember Jim Elliott. We we, uh, talked about him earlier, The Shadow of the Almighty. Uh, He went to uh, Ecuador to reach the Alca Indians, and he was slain by them. He was massacred by them. Uh, Ed McCulley was one of the missionaries that was with Jim Elliott that was killed along with him. Uh, His father, T.E. McCulley, I'll read this to you. T.E. McCulley was the father of Ed McCulley, one of the five young missionaries, along with Jim Elliott that was slain by the Alca Indians in Ecuador in 1956. After his son's death, in a prayer meeting one night, he prayed, Lord, let me live long enough to see those fellows saved, who killed our boys, so that I may throw my arms around them and tell them I love them, because they love my Christ. Wow. Lord, let me live long enough to see those fellows saved, who killed our boys, that I may throw my arms around them and tell them I love them, because they know my Christ, because they love my Christ. Now that is agape love. Slaughtered his son. I mean, it was, it was one of the worst, one of the most horrific things that had ever happened in world missions. And this is his response. That is true love. So we looked at received and responsible, and as we close, let's look briefly at rewarded, the last three verses, last four verses here, 8 through, 8 through 11. And you'll see that there are three conditional statements that Peter makes here. Um, Two of them say if, in another version, all three conditional statements are characterized by if. Uh, I I was a computer science major, I was just telling Steve, I I work in IT, and I was a computer science major in college. We wrote a lot of programs, and as smart as as computers appear to be, I can attest that computers are only as smart as the people who who program them. Right? So if you got a program that's doing dumb things, don't blame the program. Right? So when we, were, when we were doing all our debugging and you know, we, we write programs for assignments and everything, and you know, the program's supposed to go right and it goes left and loop to loop and we're like, uh, what's going on here? All you had to do was go look for the if statements. All you had to go do is go and find your conditions because something is meeting a condition... And causing that program to do something that you don't want it to do, and if you don't want it to do that, change either change your condition or change the, the input that's causing that out that outcome, right? And so, when when we evaluate our lives, we can kind of we can look at these verses here, these conditional statements, and say, "Wow, man, I I don't like that about me." Well, well, the if statement's not going to change, but we can certainly change our input. Amen. So let's look at the first one. He says, if, verse 8, if these things are yours and abound, literally, if you, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, that's what that says. There's no such thing as standing still in the Christian life. You're either moving forward or you're falling back. And I don't care what analogy you, you want to use, right? You're either swimming against the current. The current's kind of trying to pull you out into the ocean. Unless you keep swimming... You're going out. My wife and I went to to Cabo uh, back in May, and I'm not. A, I can't swim. I, I'm not even gonna lie. I can't swim at all. My wife, you know, she she can a little bit, but I can't. And uh, I got on the little inflaty thing, and uh, <laughs> decided to, to to try my luck. And I had I had a I had a floaty thing, so you know I wasn't gonna drown. I wasn't gonna drown. Praise God, but. Uh, I didn't, go, I didn't go five feet out into, into the, uh, the water, and all of a sudden, and they said that the tide was very strong that day. All of a sudden, that thing sucked me out like 12 feet. I'm like, whoa, where am I going? <laughs> it's like, this thing is not going to stop taking me out unless I move the other way. And that's what, we're, that's what we're dealing with, right? There's no such thing as standing still. When I was a kid, now I know I'm a weird kid, um, but I was uh, I was fascinated. I've always been fascinated by escalators. Hey Amen. There's there's my brother right there. My brother from another mother, Montel. There you go. I've always been fascinated by escalators. And and I kid you not, every escalator I see, I always I always in the back of my mind said, I wonder what would happen if I go the wrong way. Has anybody ever else thought that? Anybody else? Thank you. What if I go the wrong way up the escalator? How hard would I have to work to get to the top of those stairs when it's going down? Has anybody ever thought about that other than me? I I know I'm weird. I know I'm weird. But this, this is what he's saying. He said, if all these things are yours and abound, there's no standing still. There's always going to be the pressure of the earth. There's always going to be the flesh, the world, the flesh, and the devil working against us. But if these things abide in us and abound, as the if statement, then we will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord. Literally, we will not be ineffective and we will not be unproductive in the knowledge of the Lord. How many do farming? A little bit? Farming? Planting? Now, why do you plant? Do you plant to see... Some green things just kind of sprout out of the ground. Do you plant just to to enjoy the fact that you've planted? Farmers plant for one reason and one reason only. And I've got my farmer friends here to attest. To bear fruit. You want something out of that ground. If you're planting flowers, you want to see a flower. If you don't see a flower, it's a failure. Correct? If you're planting for veggies... You want to see some veggies. If you don't see veggies, it's a failure. You can see all the leaves if you want, unless those leaves are cabbage leaves or lettuce leaves. uh, It's a failure, right? Same with God. John 15, I'm the true vine, my father's the husbandman. He's planting a vineyard, and he expects to see fruit. Any branch that's in me that does not bear fruit, he takes it away. And any branch that is in me that bears fruit, he prunes it so it may bring forth more fruit. Herein is my Father, glorified, that you may bring forth much fruit. It's all about fruit to the farmer. It's all about the outcome to the farmer. He is saying, I have planted planted grace and my faith in you. I desire to see a harvest. I desire to see an outcome. And if these things be in us and abound, I'm going to see that. If virtue and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and brotherly love and charity and agape exist and abound in increasing measure, I'm going to see the fruit I'm looking for. That's what he says. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 20, by your fruit you shall know them. I used to tell that to my kids. I'm like, hey, if you, you, want, to see, you want some apples, don't go to an orange tree. And you can tell. You, I mean, you don't have to be a botanist to be to tell what kind of tree it is. All you got to do is look at the fruit. It'll tell you exactly what kind of tree it is. Now, I love what he says here. Uh, we will not be ineffective or unproductive in our knowledge of the Lord. What does that mean? Acts 4.13 says, When they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and how they were uneducated and unlearned men, they took account, or they realized, that they had been with Jesus. So Peter and John standing boldly before the Jewish leaders, and they took account, they said, wait a minute. These men have not been to the teachings that we have been under. They've not been taught by the rabbis, but they stand here and speak boldly about the word of God. They took account, they took note that they had been with Jesus. So not only do do we bear fruit that our father, that the farmer, the husbandman is pleased with, but in the eyes of the world, they begin to say, Oh, there's something different about you. Okay? They have been with Jesus. Have you been with Jesus? Your fruit will show. Your fruit will reveal that. So if these things are in you and abound, they will, uh, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful. Of course, as we said with computer science, with programming, the opposite is also true. If these things are not in you and do not abound then you will be ineffective, you will be unproductive, you will not bear fruit. Remember the parable of the sower, right? Only one of those soils brought forth the fruit that the farmer was looking for. Verse 9, for he who lacks these things, the other version says, if anyone lacks these things, so there's the second if, the second condition, he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness, And has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. So it's interesting how he uses both terms. He says blind and short-sighted. It's like, yeah, you're blind, and I'll tell you exactly what kind of blindness you have. right? Because you can have, you can have farsightedness, nearsightedness. He specifically says, no, you're nearsighted, you're short-sighted. And the, and the, the Greek term here literally means he shuts his eyes. So, it's not even like, oh, I can't help it, I just can't see. No, it's a deliberate act of the will. He shuts his eyes, is what he says. He who lacks these things shuts his eyes and, and is willfully blind, is what he says. And not only that, he says that he has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Remember Jesus' parable in, in Matthew 18 uh, about the unforgiving servant. This servant owed this exorbitant amount to the Lord, to the Master would never, ever be able to pay it. Master forgave the whole debt. He goes out and takes his other fellow servant by the neck and says, pay me what you owe me, a mere fraction of what he owed his master. He did not. He closed his eyes to the mercy he had received, and he willfully forgot that his debt was forgiven. Okay? And that forgotten... Again, the Greek word, these Greek words are really amazing. The Greek word here for forgotten is not just forgot. Again, it's not like, oh, man, oh, it slipped my mind, like like the night of worship, right? That slipped my mind. I didn't deliberately forget. But this word actually means taking hold of of forgetfulness. So it says, not only is he blind, not only does he shut his eyes, but he takes hold of forgetfulness. He willfully forgets. Romans chapter 1 talks about it, this they willfully forget, right? And what does he forget? That he was cleansed from from his old sins. The most basic reality of salvation in the gospel is this one simple thing, our sins have been forgiven. The most basic reality of salvation is the forgiveness of sins. And what he's saying here is that they forget, they willfully close their eyes and forget the most basic truth of the gospel that sins may be forgiven. Here's what Adam Clark says. He says, by these means, and this is lacking these things and not having these qualities abound in your life. He says, by these means, his darkness, he just shows the progression. He says, by these means, his darkness and hardness increase. His memory becomes indistinct and confused until at length he forgets the work of God on his soul. Next, he denies it and at last he asserts that the knowledge of salvation by the remission of sins is is impossible, and that no man can be saved from sin in this life. so you see the downward spiral of those who fail to add to their faith virtue to add to their virtue knowledge to add to their knowledge self control and so on and so forth a life of um, a life where we fail to apply these qualities these virtues, robs us of our assurance of salvation. It's really a life full of doubt. That's what he's saying here. Is that you can no longer have that assurance that, man, I, I belong to Jesus. I belong to him. And all those promises, those great and precious promises, those are mine. So again, he opens the letter saying, Let him, you know, I'm going to tell you who I'm writing to. That's what you do when you write a letter, right? Who are you writing to? I'm writing to those who have received the same precious faith As we have. And if you have received the same precious faith as we have, you should have the same assurance that we do. But if you're not adding to it, and you're backtracking, and you're backsliding, and you're diverting, and you're closing your eyes, and you're willfully forgetting, you'll find that you're in a whole heap of doubt as to whether or not you truly belong to God, whether or not you truly have heaven as your home. That doesn't sound like much of a reward, does it? So let's get to verse 10. He says, So be even more diligent. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. Whoa, now this is getting good. He says, Be more diligent to make your call and election sure. Now, that sureness is not to God. Uh, God knows where we are. God wants us to know where we are. So this sureness, this assurance here is for us, it's for our sake. Be more diligent for your own sake so that when you look at your life, you can say, yes, I belong to Him. I know that I belong to Him. Not because of anything that I've done. Right? We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, to do good works. My works don't give me assurance. The fact that I have been bought with a price and the fact that by his grace, his virtues have become real in my life, I can look and say, yes, I do belong to the Lord. Yes, I have assurance of salvation. By developing these qualities, we maintain our personal joy and assurance of salvation. Truly saved people, soundly saved people, should be some of the most joyful people you ever meet. Should be some of the most joyful people you ever meet. That doesn't mean they don't go through things. They just go through it in a different way. They go through in a way that the world cannot possibly fathom and understand. This is what we have to look forward to. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, examine yourselves to see if you're in, your, in the faith. Examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Philippians 2.12 says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. These exhortations to us are to continually evaluate ourselves. Right? 1 Corinthians 11 in the, in the Lord's Supper, and let a man examine himself and let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. As Pastor Tim always says, no one can snatch us out of Christ's hand, but we can jump out. Right? But so long as we're not jumping out, so long as we are adding to our faith, we'll never have to worry about that. And that's what it means by never stumble. And that was another one that tripped me up. It's like, man, never? <laughs> never is a long time. And uh, I don't know about you, but I've done my share of stumbling. So what does he mean by that? And what does John mean in 1 John 3 9 says, Whoever is born of God does not sin and cannot sin. Like, where are you going with this? Of course, it does not mean that we'll never sin, that we'll never we'll never trip, we'll never stumble. What it talks about here is the falling headlong, headfirst into sin, disgrace, and disuse. It is that permanent disqualification from any useful service to the Lord. In in essence, that person is lost. That person is lost. We will never suffer the lostness that those who do not belong to Christ will suffer if our calling and election are sure by the addition and the working in, the, the building up of this chorus of virtues before the Lord. And then finally, verse 11. And he says, such an an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Wow. When I read that, I think about a victory parade, like your favorite football team or your favorite basketball team, right? When they win the championship and they do the parade in the town, it is just an absolute madhouse. I mean, that team goes down the street and all the confetti and all the cheers and all the just, just the euphoria over their entry into the city, right? Nobody wanted to be, you know, the Golden State Warriors after the finals, right? Imagine them coming off the plane. Wow, well, you guys did a good job. I'm sorry, sorry. Like, what do you say to those guys? What do you say to those guys? And this, I believe this is what Peter's getting at, is, is the, the whole picture of, and of course they didn't have basketball football, they, they were more like a victorious Roman soldier, right? A, a victorious general who returns to the city with the spoils of the enemy, and there's this huge parade, a victory parade, where they just celebrate his, his entry. Right. Let's turn, just uh, and we're closing, turn real quick to First uh, Corinthians chapter 3. I just want to read this. because this kind of shows the, uh, the difference. Uh, we'll start at verse nine. It says, "For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field. You are God's building." According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one, this is to us, let each one take heed how he builds it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Again, see, this this, this ties directly into our study, right? It's not our works. It's not us adding virtue and us adding knowledge. If we have nothing to add it to, there's no other foundation that can be laid but that which is Jesus Christ. And he says, verse 12, now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become clear. In the end, for the day, and if you have a new King James, that day is capitalized, the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on on it endures, he shall receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire." Paul is saying it is possible to enter into the kingdom like a shipwrecked sailor in a burnt-out boat. But it's also possible to enter in with full colors, with all the pomp and circumstance. This awaits the believer. Can you even imagine that? Can you imagine that? I tell you what, I don't want to be sneaking in the back door of heaven. And when the, when the Lord gives out crowns, I don't want to be the one that has nothing to give to him, nothing to cast at his feet. This is just one of many passages in the Bible that kind of outline and break down what it takes to grow. And I don't know about you, but in my study, it, I had to stop and look at each one and say, hey, is that real in me? Hey, is that real in me? Hey, is that real in me? And do those if-then statements. right? Am I, am I fruitful? Am I effective? If I'm not, these things aren't, aren't abounding in me. right? But if I'm adding these things in increasing measure, then praise be to God. I belong to Him. I belong to Him, and He belongs to me. Amen? Amen. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank You, Lord, for Your Word tonight. We thank You for... Just this message from from Peter, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We ask, Lord, that you will just search our hearts, for you know us, Lord, far better than we do. And Lord, I know that uh, teaching about the grace of God and the works of men can be confusing, and Lord, if anything was said that is confusing, confusing, I just pray that you just purge that completely out of anyone's memory, and only those things that are helpful and edifying would remain. But Lord, I ask that as we take this word home, as we think upon it, Lord, that you would just uh, open our eyes and show us where we are, show us where we lack, show us where we must grow. Lord, for you as the planter, as the husbandman, desire to see fruit, and Lord, if you're not seeing fruit in us, we pray, Holy Spirit that you would prune us, that you would wash us, that you would put us in a place where we may bear you much fruit for your glory. Lord, we pray for Pastor Tim and uh, Pastor Randy and and Scott and the rest of the families, Lord, who are on vacation. We ask for their continued safety. We pray, Lord, for your hand to be upon them, and Lord, that this time would be restful and refreshing for them, that they would return with, with renewed strength to go forward in ministry. We ask your blessing upon us as we leave. Lord, bring us home safely. And let your spirit go with us for the remainder of this week until we meet again. These things we ask in your precious name. Amen. Amen. Thank you.